Greetings, everybody. We are still currently somewhere between season two and season three of the podcast. Where exactly? Nobody knows. Anyway, we're going to be relaunching season three at the end of April in just about a week and a half's time. Until then, I'm bringing you some of the most classic episodes from the DPS catalog. Today, I'm going to be airing the A and the B sides from my interview with Adam Hilton from over a year and a half ago. We talked about the Democratic Party and the left, and I think it was a really instructive conversation. Not only that, but I would go so far as to say that we presaged many of the developments that happened inside the Democratic Party ever since. Most importantly, AOC. Now, I don't want to spike the football and do a touchdown dance too soon. I am not going to go so far as to suggest that I saw the AOC victory coming. I did not. I did not expect her to win. Almost nobody did. She shocked us all in many respects. But I do think that structurally speaking, the argument that Adam Hilton and I laid out over a year and a half ago in these A and B sides was quite apt. And it lines up with this inside-outside strategy that the broad socialist left has taken up ever since. And so I think this is a really great historical perspective in order to think about how far the left has come ever since. So I'm replaying these A and B sides for everybody to enjoy. Many of you have probably heard the A side, but very few of you, patrons included, have probably gone so far deep into the back catalog as to, to dig up that B side. So playing them both for you today. Earlier this week, I released a classic episode with Freddie DeBoer. That was a way of sort of revisiting the history of the left, history of the present, if you will, over the past two years. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I just released a B-side with a chat that I did with Lee Phillips and Michal Rosworski on their book, People's Republic of Walmart. So patrons, check out your feed for that. If you're not a patron, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. You'll get access to that B-side. And in addition, I'm going to be putting out a B-side next week as well. There will be no new A-sides until we relaunch season three towards the end of April. And boy, oh boy, am I excited to announce the lineup that we've got for that. We're going to be revisiting a lot of themes from season one, talking about anti-essentialism and the centrality of class politics and how it overlaps with our principled socialist anti-oppression stances. Uh, let's see, we're talking about anti-imperialism, uh, decolonization, the legacy of Edward Said and the post-colonial movement. A lot of these themes that you remember and you may recall from season one, we're going to be revisiting with new voices and old voices alike. A lot of really great stuff in store. I've been working on YouTube videos as well. The website is under construction. You can check it out at deadpundits.com. That's just sort of an under construction launch page. It's going to look very different in its final version. Anyway, enough out of me. Enjoy this classic episode. Here are the A and B sides back to back with Adam Hilton from about a year and a half ago. Enjoy. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundits Society. Joining me this week to continue our Labor and the Capitalist State series is Adam Hilton. Adam is a faculty member at Mount Holyoke College, and his research is all about the Democratic Party. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic Party and the left. And man, I can't think of a more fortuitous week to be having this discussion. 
most of you will know by now that former DNC interim chair Donna Brazil has recently written a tell-all book where she makes a series of allegations about how the Clinton campaign rigged the primary elections uh, from a couple of summers ago. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to hear more about that from Adam. We're going to break down exactly what those allegations might be. And most importantly, we're going to talk about the nature and the history of the Democratic Party. Is it a viable site of contestation for leftward advancement? I mean, these are really hot topics on the left right now. Some people want to go inside the Democratic Party, take over the DNC. Uh, you know, you saw Tom Perez recently expel a number of Bernie surrogates. So that doesn't seem like a very viable option right now. And nonetheless, there are people who want to run parties, uh, run candidates, rather, under the Democratic Party ticket. And then there are those on the left who want nothing at all whatsoever to do with the Democratic Party at this point, And they want to sort of build an alternative outside of the two-party structure. But all of these debates rely on a certain kind of fundamental understanding of the Democratic Party as a monolithic institutional form. And Adam, Adam Hilton is going to go a long way in debunking that myth. Turns out the Democratic Party is far more amorphous uh, than it is hegemonic or homogenous and that has tremendous implications for our interaction with it spoiler alert this is not going to be an episode where we're going to try to convince you that the democratic party can be taken over by leftists however in our critique of the democratic party we present a far more nuanced uh, conception of it i think than what you're going to hear elsewhere outside of dead pundit society land I've got a B-side that I'm going to be releasing in the next couple of days uh, available to my patrons where Adam Hilton and I are going to be talking about the recent Bernie Sanders uh, effort to uh, alter the Democratic Party and what that means for the left project as a whole. So only my patrons are going to be able to hear that, folks. So if you're not a subscriber, a member of the Dead Pundit Society, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for $5 a month. And you'll get access to that B-side as well as all of the others. My guests have been spitting fire lately. They've been really great. And I've got a B-side with Leo Panich that's phenomenal. I've got a really good B-side with Steve Marr that I did last week. So, hey, five bucks a month is a pretty good investment to get all of this great content. Plus, you'll be supporting the New Left Agenda. Check me out on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. All that good stuff. So later in the interview, Adam and I are going to be talking about the 1968 Democratic Party convention that resulted in riots on the floor of the convention and outside of the convention hall. So here's a quick one minute clip just detailing that summer and why it was so monumental uh, for the Democratic Party's realignment efforts. Then I'll be bringing you my interview with Adam Hilton. Enjoy. For Democrats, the Chicago convention of 1968 was a nightmare. Meeting after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, Democrats fell into chaos, fighting Chicago police and each other. With George McGovern as president of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo tactics in the streets of Chicago. Mr. Daley is not pleased with Senator Ribicoff. How hard it is, how hard it is to accept the truth. Vice President Hubert Humphrey, hobbled by the unpopularity of President Johnson and his Vietnam War policies, appealed for order. 
Surely we have now learned the lesson that violence breeds counterviolence, and it cannot be condoned, whatever the source. It didn't work. Humphrey's November defeat ushered in the era of Republican presidential dominance with seven GOP victories in the last 10 elections. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Adam Hilton. He's a visiting lecturer in politics at Mount Holyoke College, and he's got a really great essay in the upcoming Socialist Register 2018. That essay is called Organized for Democracy, Left Challenges Inside the Democratic Party. Adam, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So it is quite fortuitous that you would be on the Dead Pundit Society this week, given the recent revelations of former DNC head Donna Brazil, your essay and your, you know, your academic research, uh, I would say as a whole, is really focused at looking at the this, this specific historical institutional configuration that is the Democratic Party. And Donna Brazil gave us a really interesting look uh, behind the curtain, if you will. Uh, what do you make of Donna's allegations and what does that tell us? about the Democratic Party as a site of contestation today? Hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really good question. And uh, I've begun sort of sifting through what some of the reactions, uh, you know, online and in the usual uh, publications have been to this set of revelations. And I actually think the Atlantic Magazine might have had it best uh, or said it best when uh, one of their staff writers said, uh, the only surprise here is that this was a surprise to Donna Brazil. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. Now, that the uh, Democratic Party as an organization is a vehicle of its candidates uh, rather than a structure that is responsive to the will of the Democratic rank and file or the party membership, however that's understood, is that should not be much of a revelation for people. The nature of American political parties uh, going back a very, very long time has always been one that prioritizes uh, the winning of office, and the promotion of personalities in the party. So these revelations, in as much as they reveal or show us that the Clinton, administra- or the Clinton campaign organization had preemptorily taken over the DNC uh, a year prior to Clinton uh, clinching the nomination, is really only an acceleration of a tendency that is the standard operating procedure of the national committee. So we might say, so what the, what you're referring to there is the fact that the DNC was broke uh, following Obama's uh, first and second campaigns. The can- the coffers were not filled, at least so the allegations go. And the DNC had to turn to the Clinton campaign to uh, to fund itself, just its day to day operations, mm-hmm. at least that that's that that's the story that's being told and woven today. We'll see how much of that turns out to be true as the rebuttals and, and such come in. Um, so what you what you seem to be uh, implying is that that the, the this this is the fundamental way that the uh, political parties in, in the United States operate. It's just that perhaps some of the barriers to fundraising made that reality more explicit in this case. Yeah. I mean, what, what I'd want to emphasize here is that anyone familiar with the institutional organization of the Democratic Party 
and its relationship to major candidates and especially presidential candidates and, and presidents themselves once they occupy the White House. Anyone familiar with that history would know that, that the National Committee has operated as essentially an ATM for those candidates. That It really doesn't do much else. And interestingly, uh, as, as uh, careful political scientists like uh, Dan Galvin have shown, going back to the early post-war period, very much unlike their Republican counterparts, Democratic presidents have routinely exploited the DNC to the hilt, hmm. uh, depriving it of all autonomy, whatever shred of autonomy it even nominally has, uh, basically subordinating it to the will of the Oval Office, uh, the use of it as a patronage machine for rewarding allies, and using it as a sort of junior partner to uh, run the president's uh, initial campaign and then the re-election campaign. That's very interesting. So it's, it, you, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, maybe debunking some of the mythology that, that, that uh, you know, that exists around, uh, you know, the, just the party structure in, in the United States. The United States, as you write elsewhere, has a very unique party structure. So let's go back to the basics. Uh, the Democratic Party is at the center of a number of controversies, particularly on the left today, following Sanders, uh, you know, close but failed uh, attempt to win the nomination. So the main battle lines are drawn on the question of whether or not the Democratic Party should be or could be a site of struggle for leftward political advance. We have, you know, just really kind of making a straw man here for the sake of argumentation. I know there's a lot of differentiation and nuance here, but the argument seems to have, broadly speaking, two sides, particularly, say, like on the social uh, democratic left. One group is fighting to uh, go inside the Democratic Party and sort of wield it for left political purposes. And the other group is trying to uh, just rid itself of any kind of Democratic Party affiliation or influence. And you try to you, – you, your article really goes a long way in painting a far more complex picture. Uh, you write, unlike all other advanced capitalist democracies – the United States never produced a labor-based political party. As labor and social democratic parties emerged elsewhere during the late 19th century, American trade unionists debated whether or not to launch an independent party or to join an existing coalition, and they ultimately opted for a nonpartisan strategy of, quote, pure and simple unionism for fear of violent repression, partisan conflict in the union rank and file, and the off-putting sectarianism of many American socialists. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Why is it that the American uh, uh, you know, labor movement did not opt for a traditional social democratic party formation? Yeah, well, it goes back to uh, the beginnings of the uh, AFL, the American Federation of Labor, uh, in the late 19th century. And uh, just as, as you mentioned, just to paint a bit of a comparative perspective here, as labor-based parties, social democratic parties, socialist parties, and formally speaking, labor parties were emerging and consolidating as organizational vehicles for the working class in many advanced capitalist countries on either side of the Atlantic. The uh, organized working class in the United States faced a situation where uh, two parties already existed uh, that had developed much earlier due to, in part, the fairly 
early democratization of, and, and, and spread of suffrage among uh, white male uh, property, property-less working-class people in the 1820s through the 1840s. And uh, to be frank, as, uh, just to spell out what I, what I say in that um, passage that you quoted, is they faced a fairly unique set of constraints. The organized labor movement, the Gompersonians, the Gompers leadership of the AFL, were very cautious of what would happen to them were they to try and sponsor a labor party that would compete with and, and probably, hopefully, displace one of the existing uh, major two parties, uh, Republicans and Democrats at the time, or join in one of the existing ones. That is, tr- try and become a partisan member of, a, of an existing party coalition. And what they opted for instead was a, was a seemingly uh, position of a pressure group, right, in the formal old sense of you remain independent and autonomous of two existing parties so that you may meaningfully try and leverage one against the other in order to, to meet your demands. So this would give the Labor Federation flexibility to work with Republicans in states where states or cities where Republicans held power, work with Democrats in places where Democrats held power. But at the same time, there were other things they were very worried, worried about too. Uh, it wasn't just for an actual strategic flexibility, is they were genuinely concerned that were they to try and become overtly political organizations, that the trade unions would face more violent repression than they had already faced in the late 19th century with Pinkertons and uh, especially state militias basically destroying them every chance that they got through last third of the 19th century. So we might say that conservatism, or at least the hesitancy there, to be more accurately, perhaps, I mean, we might interpret that in hindsight with with historical perspective as a conservative edge. But perhaps it was a more pragmatic hesitancy towards, a, you know, a labor radicalism was brought about by a, a fairly the fairly unique barbarism that that the early labor movement faced during that time absolutely i mean i you can go back and you you can find of course as you can within the labor movement or any movement at any particular time there were competing tendencies uh and even those who were ideologically and principally committed to trying to launch an independent political voice for labor either as a third party, or linking strongly with an existing party, even those folks understood that pragmatically this could blow up in their face, right, and set them back another generation. Right. It's very interesting that you point, because actually what I should have asked beforehand, so we'll go back to it now, what I should have asked beforehand, before I got into the, uh, you know, whether or not a social democratic party formation in the United States, like the, the ones that were popping up, like say, um, you know, in the 1880s and 1890s in, in Europe, because we need to go about 50 years uh, backwards in time to really understand, to, to really set the stage for this, because you write about the world historic formation of a fairly egalitarian, at least in terms of, like you say, property less men, white men, in the 1830s and 40s, we had the first mass democratic parties uh, in the world, perhaps. So tell us a little bit about the formation of the Whigs uh, and, and the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the 
yes, Democrats at that time. Yeah, they, they it's it's uh, uh, the Whigs sprout up as a competitor to the Jacksonian uh, Democratic Party, which really is uh, the first mass party. And what I mean by that, and it's we have to be pretty careful about what we mean by that. Right, right. Now it's a <laughs> there. There are quite a few people left out of that mass, if you might, you know, if you. Well, absolutely, yeah. and and even further, I want to emphasize that this is a mass party, meaning that it is oriented to mobilizing large blocks of uh, electoral uh, uh, of, of voters in order so that they might take office. Right when prevail in elections and take office, but these were not decidedly not mass member organizations, right? And this is the critical departure between American party organizations and their European Western European counterparts. Is these were they were so they were mass organizations? They were they were oriented towards mobilizing followings, but they did not integrate those followings into any kind of membership organization that had some ultimately centralized bureaucratic form of decision-making. Membership implies that those members might have some amount of nominal or real control over the party. Where you have a mass, but that is not made up of members, their relationship to the leadership of the party is much more tenuous. So all this is to say that rather then the Western European situation, which was famously once described by one of the pioneers of political party scholarship as uh, Western European mass parties arising as a contagion from the left, right? The need to try and build robust membership-based, dues-based organizations around the enfranchisement of the working class. Instead, in the United States, you had political elites inside the state, needing to go outward into the country to mobilize larger and larger following so that they might beat their elite counterparts in the contestation of office. Wow. So you might you might sort of make a modern day comparison here with that. That would be more of an astroturf movement as opposed to the European, uh, you know, outgrowth would be a more grassroots movement, uh, perhaps to say. Yeah, I, it's, I don't think that would be uh, an incorrect analogy. American political parties in the United States were built from the top down. So and there's a lot of parallels here, as you mentioned in your article. My first episode ever here on the Dead Pundit Society, I had on Seth Ackerman, who at that time had just written a blueprint for a new party. Mm-hmm. Uh, old school Dead Pundit Society uh, listeners will have heard that one for sure. If you haven't, folks should go check it out. Um, that, that's still a relevant article. It's talking about, you know, first and foremost, the nature of American political parties, the, the, the impasses of making them, like you say, uh, mass parties, uh, actually mass membership parties with direction from the members and inclusion and uh, mass participation. And then what it would mean to sort of develop a third a third way outside of mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, two party duopoly, uh, you know, duopolistic systems that we have. Uh, what do you make of Seth's argument? about you know his his analysis of of the the party structure and what to do about it. I think I mean Seth has put out a very interesting uh a set of ideas and and I really need to credit him with with very creative thinking about this. Uh I think it's it's a visionary statement and it does um articulate what to my mind is a is a plausible idea on how you could push 
forward a way of trying to construct a third party institutionally or, or organizationally. My reservations about it, which were similar to the ones that uh, I believe uh, Adolf Reed and it was probably Mark Dudzik, um, yep, yep. their their response to uh, Seth's uh, essay, um, and this is this is generally my my criticism of what I see as being rather uncritical uh, endorsements for third parties, uh, actually existing third parties today, is that it has a little bit of a tendency to assume that there that the constituency for a third party already exists out there somewhere that the two party system is merely strangling the expression of this desire and people are right to point to there was actually just recently a new opinion survey that found about 61% of respondents if i if i recall were generally supportive to the idea that there should be more electoral options uh, in the United States. And that's great. That that suggests that there is some basis on which to build. But nevertheless, the the actual structural imposition of trade-offs between those who would be inclined to support a third party but do not want to uh, suffer what we call the spoiler problem where you split the left-leaning vote in two ways, neither hits a, a plurality or, or a majority threshold, and you end up facilitating the election of your least favorite party. The Ralph Nader effect if, for, for folks of this generation, if you will. At least that's the allegation. Yeah, that is the allegation. And you know, I mean, we can put to the side whether that is, is, is right. actually true or not, but it's true enough in the sense that this presents a, a real barrier that I think met that that many people feel they cannot take that risk. There's a specter that's haunting third party politics, you might say, that falls under the sign of of the Ralph Nader effect. Whether or not it's true is not is beside the point. That's that's, that's always the clear and present danger. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's let's go back. This was good. This was a good uh, we we spent a solid 20 minutes there just kind of talking around the topic. We hit on a number of issues. Uh we foregrounded the recent uh, you know, our, our contemporary moment in, in the, the tumult inside the Democratic Party with uh, Donna Brazil's recent allegations and revelations, if you will. So let's go all the way back. Socialists, all the way back to the time of Marx, have thrown around a concept uh, when it comes to political parties that socialists in the United States are using heavily today. And we want to kind of theorize this and think about the accuracy of it. You asked the question, is the Democratic Party a bourgeois party? Because that's the way it's oftentimes dismissed, right? So tell us, what is a bourgeois party and, and what's your assessment of, of whether or not the Democratic Party uh, qualifies? As well? Yeah, well, I think it's a question worth asking. And, you know, when I once I began asking that question, uh, I actually basically searched around in vain to find, uh, despite the frequency of its use as a uh, term of opprobrium, it's very hard to find a coherent defense of it as a concept. What about a bourgeois party makes it so bourgeois? You know, is it, is it its sources of funding? Is it its, the, who, its social base, who it rallies for elections? Is it simply its party platform, the, its program? Is it, it the policies of its office holders? You know, it's, it's unclear. It's ambiguous. So as, as I've tried to think this through, basically came up with, you could probably think of a bourgeois party in two different ways. Uh, you could contrast it 
on the one hand, sort of treat it as a, an analog of a working class party, right? A party that is dedicated to the uh, transformation of the proletariat into a class, as uh, Marx and Engels once put it, one that not only is trying to build the collective capacities of the working class to think and act like a class, but is also trying to win seats in office through democratic electoral processes to leverage the power of that class in order to winning simply uh, short-term modest reforms or even more ambitious non-reformist reforms. If that's what a working class party is, well, then a bourgeois party, it would seem to follow, would be one that organizes the bourgeoisie to act as a class. Yet, that doesn't quite describe the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has historic roots going back to the New Deal and and arguably even before of having within it the organized presence of, of the working class, especially from 1936 uh, through the 1960s and 70s was able to act as a kind of uh, surrogate campaign organization for the Democratic Party. So if the Democratic Party is a bourgeois party in that sense, it is also somewhat of a working class party. It's a strange hybrid of a certain kind. I think that maybe there's another way of thinking about bourgeois party that gets us a little closer to the truth, which is that you could construct an analogy with the bourgeois state, or what is at least these days more often called the capitalist state. Right. And now we're getting into uh, the labor and the capitalist state theme. Uh, your, your portion of the article that, dis- that discusses this is really interesting. So I want folks to listen closely to this. You know, we had uh, Raphael Kachaturian talk about state theory. We had Leo Panich uh, break down the importance of uh, state theory in assessing imperialism and then the way that parties and states function. We had Steve Marr on last week to talk about corporations in the state. So now here you are, Adam Hilton. Tell us about Democratic Party and uh, the capitalist state. Okay, that? well, if, if we were to build an analogy between a bourgeois party and the bourgeois state, we, it's obviously pointing to something structural. Um, the whole contribution of, of going back to uh, Miliband and Pulansa so back in the 1970s and moving on through um, Leo Panich and, and, and some of the other members uh, uh, that you've had on your show the members of this debate have contributed uh, the claim that the personnel of the state, those who are actually elected to office, those who serve as bureaucrats, uh, whether they all are members of the capitalist class, uh, whether they have large portfolio investments, whether they all just went to the same elite schools, or whether they were all taught to think in terms of homo economicus by their neoclassical economics teachers. Part of what the theory of the capital state is contributing is that even if none of those things are true, even if we could imagine a working class party elected to to office that is committed to a socialist program or a program that is some ways going to challenge the power and authority of the business community, that the capitalist state, due to its own structural dependence on the performance of capitalism, on economic growth, for its own self-reproduction, both in terms of materially reproducing itself, but also remaining uh, uh, reproducible in the terms of legitimacy, that even then the state would be dependent on governing on behalf of capital, right? It would face that structural constraint. 
And I think this gets us a little closer to understanding maybe how the Democratic Party is a bourgeois party. I see. I see. So even though there are elements inside of the, of, of the various Democratic Party coalitions throughout history, and we're going to get we're going to get into those here shortly, uh, even though, say, working class and labor elements are inside of that coalition, the party nonetheless is oftentimes finds itself at the helm of a capitalist state, which ha- is, is sort of compelled by capitalist imperatives to do just that, to reproduce the relations of capitalism, which is the subordination of labor to the capitalists, in short, and then the competition of American capital with with foreign capital and and, and otherwise, perhaps just to, just to name a couple dynamics. Yeah, and I think we could go even further uh, beyond just what party scholars call the party in government, by which we mean all those members of the Democratic Party that are office holders. But if we also look at the party organization outside of the state, right? The, the apparatus that we know as the Democratic National Committee, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, uh, all the state Democratic parties and uh, 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 local party committees. If we, if we take that whole organizational ensemble, even that is, is precisely because, it's, because it is not a mass membership organization. It, it does not have members. It does not have dues that those members pay. Uh, it does not have policy committees that facilitate and develop their members in an ideological kind of way. That party is structurally dependent on finding finance wherever it can. And the easiest way it can do that is through linkages with the business community. So in the same way that the capitalist state is structurally dependent on the business community as a whole for the reproduction of itself, we could see in ways that the Democratic Party and, and both, obviously, both American political parties, because they're structured in pretty similar ways, are structurally dependent on trying to organize financing by appealing to sectors of capital in, in ways where they do not have to appeal in the same way to mass memberships. So in, in as much as the parties tend to passively rely on voters Right. Every time an election season comes, then they start worrying about how to organize voters to get out the vote. Right. Between campaign seasons, the Democratic Party has no organizational presence in most people's lives. However, at the top of the income scale, the Democratic Party is almost a permanent presence of those people's lives through fundraising dinners, through all kinds of different mechanisms linking linking them to where their funding comes from. So the party is very passive and hollow when it comes to organizing its mass members, but is exceptionally active in trying to organize capital in order to get their funding. It strikes me that political parties in the United States, what you're explaining here, what you write about in your in your articles, uh, in various essays, is that, I mean, it, it's an institution, but it's almost kind of like the Swiss cheese of institutions, right? Because on the one hand, it has a certain, t- it has a certain kind of uh, shape, at a certain kind of fo- institutional form to itself, but it really does have a lot of holes in it in terms of the way that typical institutions, uh, in the way that institutions typically uh, shape the collectivities 
that are bound or, or inside of it or, 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 or underneath of it or, or however you want to mm-hmm. frame it. Right. So, I mean, I, I promised I was going to go back into the history, but let's jump ahead. Uh, just, just to kind of flag an issue here. You just really explained the key fault lines between the Clinton and the Sanders campaign in, in, in the Donna Brazil revelations that just mm-hmm. came out because the accusation is that uh, the Clinton campaign subordinated the DNC uh, to to itself uh, because Clinton was out there getting these uh, you know high dollar donors to these to these mm-hmm. parties uh, to to fund the operations of the Democratic Party uh, going into the 2016 election. That was the promise mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, whether or not you know she was successful is another question. Perhaps. No, if anything, if these if these revelations are true, which I mean, at least to to some degree, I think they are. We can maybe talk more about how how I think we could misinterpret what Brazil is saying. But to the degree that it's true, in fact, this only lays more blame for the outcome of the election on Clinton's shoulders. Because if she was truly in in command of the DNC from that early a point, there is no way you can blame lackluster operatives of the DNC for her failure in in the election. Because now the entire campaign, not only her campaign, but the nominally independent campaign operations undertaken on her behalf by the DNC was actually just her own personal responsibility. She's not a passive victim. She was the orchestrator. Apparently. Along, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So we can flag that for the end. Cause I, like you, I want to get back to that and get your take on some of these, some, some of these. Yeah. Let me, let me just uh, add just one thing to cap off the, the discussion sure, sure. of uh, party structure. Um, I, I mean, actually I like your analogy of, of Swiss cheese and that, that, that gets that metaphor or that simile gets us, um, I think gets us uh, pretty far. But the other, the other sort of image that, that I've been toying with lately, uh, and this applies to both parties uh, through, through their long history, is American political parties are, are like amoebas or something like that. They, ha- they have a discernible formal structure, right? We can point to what is the formal party. Right there's the DNC, there's the RNC, uh, there are the state parties, there are the state party chairs and vice chairs and etc. But they are are rather hollow organizations, and what I mean by that is, American political parties for a very long time have never really had much of a way of developing the resources and skills they need to win elections in house. So what what they do is they have to find sort of campaign and financial organizational surrogates that they can glom onto and use to try and and win electoral majorities. And the parties first did this going way way back to what we were talking about before in the in the eighteen um, thirties uh, and throughout the most of the nineteenth uh, century. They did this by colonizing states. Right by colonizing government and basically selling off the resources of the government, right long before a civil service uh, uh, bureaucracy developed in the United States, it was all staffed by party appointments. So parties through patronage networks built themselves up from the state and outward into the society. Now, service uh, civil service reform eventually came. Uh, closing off access of uh, to that vital resource for parties, and then they had to start coming up with other ways of of mobilizing mass members and and uh, developing the resources needed to win majorities. And this is where the parties actually become much more movement oriented, 
is movements become something that, that not only try to influence parties, but that parties are very interested in integrating, but on their terms. And this becomes the long thread that goes through the ups and downs of American electoral politics, is both parties have been drawn inexorably towards different movements that have their own mobilizing infrastructures, right? The labor movement, obviously, through the trade unions and through dues financing, would become a powerful electoral vehicle. But so would uh, right-wing Christian churches for the Republican Party in the 1970s and 80s and so on. So th- those amoeba-like structures make them permeable, right, by outside forces, but they also, they give parties the need to try and reach out and find existing resources out there in society through which they can mobilize to try and win elections. That, that is an incredibly fascinating observation, a structural historical kind of foundation, because, I mean, I think it's, it's you know... I don't think we even need to say that the history of social movements in North America and particularly the United States is kind of unique. I mean, I think, you know, of all of the countries, perhaps, whether it's deserved or not, I don't know, of all of the countries in the world, I would say. I mean, um, the United States is known for having, I think, the most like iconic social movements. And, And perhaps you've really pointed to the the reason for that and in so far as these movements are there to make themselves available in a variety of ways to one or another party and so there's there's always this kind of push or pull into how the party will incorporate or not incorporate or be able to mobilize or not be able to mobilize this or that movement or collectivity of people in a way that these movements operate outside of the party necessarily because the party is really kind of a a hollow vessel that sort of requires the lifeblood and the energy of these movements to, 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 to mm-hmm. operate and, and, and run by operate. And we, you mean very explicitly to win elections and finance right. elections. Right. And I mean, and, and part of the explanation of, of just what you're saying is, is in, for one, the rather unique structure of the American state provides so many openings to, to social movements, to interest groups, to organized actors in American society, that it's no wonder that social movements proliferate. And, and, and we talk now, in, at least in the social movement literature, of the social movement society, when everyone, right, right and left and center, uh, mobilize along uh, familiar social movement kind of tactics. But because the political parties, as, as we discussed uh, a little earlier, because the political parties developed inside the state and then went outward into society, it's no wonder that the parties have a similar structure to the American state in that they are federated, decentralized institutions, right? There isn't, there isn't really a national democratic party. There are 50 state parties. Actually, there are more because they have state parties and territories uh, and uh, protectorates. Uh, but let's just say for now that there are 50 state democratic parties, right? And they confederate together once every four years to try and nominate uh, a candidate for, for national office. Uh, that's a highly perme- permeable structure, you know, where, where you don't actually have to capture the castle, the national committee, in order to have power in the party. As I think I mentioned in the, uh, the essay in the register, uh, Eric Schickler's new book on the rise of the civil rights movement 
within the Democratic Party going all the way back to the 30s and the 40s is that racial liberals, along with their labor allies in, in the newly formed uh, CIO at the time, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, they could penetrate state parties, right, and change state party platforms and put pressure on state party actors who did not have the same kind of pressures on them that, say, Truman or Kennedy or Johnson before 1964 had on them to try and hold together a New Deal coalition that, that straddled labor liberals in the North and very racially conservative anti-union Democrats in the South. Interesting. So I, I'm tempted to get into the, the, some of the more the, some of the things about arguments as to why perhaps this permeability uh, lends itself to maybe taking over the Democratic Party as a vessel of progressive and leftward advance. But I'm going to flag that. I'm going to bookmark that and we're going to put that towards the end of the episode. But because before we do that, we're really talking around the various coalitions that have existed inside and outside the Democratic Party since the beginning. So we're going to go at least back to the New Deal, I would say. So to tell me a little bit about the coalition of broad social, political, economic forces uh, that were really behind the Democratic Party's success in the New Deal. Yeah, well, the New Deal, uh, it stood on three legs organizationally. You had, of course, northern big city, what they were called machine Democrats, right? This is the mayoral offices that become associated with the Democratic Party or, or even uh, governorships that become these uh, party machines. Tammany Hall in New York being one of the most famous, but far from uh, the only one. Then, of course, you had the long-established stronghold of the Democratic Party, or since the real end of Reconstruction and the consolidation of Jim Crow, which was the uh, one-party Democratic South. A place uh, where, as uh, Rob Mickey has uh, argued very convincingly in a fairly uh, new book called Paths Out of Dixie, these were not just places where the Democratic Party was dominant. These were places that, by the same standards that we would apply to, say, the Soviet Union, were one-party authoritarian states, where there was no institutional difference between the Democratic Party in, say, the state of Mississippi and the state of Mississippi. The state and the party had fused. And then uh, third of all, the, uh, the New Deal coalition, the new a uh, relatively new member of the New Deal coalition uh, after uh, the 1932 and especially by the 1936 election uh, was, of course, labor. That through the actions of the CIO, which in 1935 had broken away from the AFL, became uh, one of the main organizational vehicles and funders of democratic elections in uh, the late 1930s, early 40s. So you can see there those that three-legged stool that you sort of just uh, constructed for us there that comprised the New Deal Democratic Party coalition. There are some inherent contradictions in, in among those three, not only among the three themselves, but also within the three, mm-hmm. right? I mean, labor itself is not a monolith. Uh, the, the urban machine political apparatuses, they are not monolithic. And uh, the, the Dixiecrats, you know, at, at that time, uh, were all themselves not monolithic in the various – there was some differentiation between from state to state, from the old border states to the deep south and so on. Um, so so the, we're, we're really building up an, a tenuous 
uh, conflictual, contradictory uh, unity of forces inside the Democratic Party uh, leading up to the New Deal and beyond. So you can see that ruptures and fractures are going to begin to open as time goes on within those coalitions. So take us past uh, World War II then into the 1940s. Uh, what happens uh, in in the South uh, with, with that correlation? Yeah, well, it is uh, the ruptures begin almost instantly. Uh, you're right to point to the contradictions uh, within each leg of the stool, but also especially between the legs of the stu- of the stool, and the overall dynamic of the New Deal. The success of the coalition is what is undermining the conditions for its reproduction uh, over time. Uh, it's also worth noting that it is only because you have a federated, decentralized party structure that this coalition could exist at all. Uh, It's impossible to imagine uh, the anti-union, racially conservative South in the same party coalition, uh, under the same party label, with its avowed enemies in the North, uh, labor liberals in the North. So, that being said, the party structure not only allowed this uh, coalition to to exist, but also became one of the major re- mechanisms for its reproduction. Um, and so the, the big first uh, internal party flare-up uh, occurs at the uh, 1948 uh, Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. This is a time uh, where President Truman uh, is looking for a re-election. Truman's advisors are telling him at first uh, you know, you can probably ignore the South. The South can be taken for granted. The South doesn't have any room for maneuver, right? It's a one-party South. Where are they going to go? They can't possibly deflect, uh, defect to uh, the Republicans. And um, so eventually, um, although this it gets pretty dicey in terms of uh, Truman begins to get very nervous about this uh, in terms of the South threatening to create a lot of problems for him. At his nominating convention, the CIO and uh, the major group of Cold War liberals known as uh, the Americans for Democratic Action or the ADA, they insert a very strongly worded civil rights plank into the um, Democratic platform uh, at the convention. Hubert Humphrey gives a barn burner of a resolution nominating speech. The floor of the convention overwhelmingly votes the platform in. And the Southern delegations go walking out, uh, Mississippi uh, and South Carolina in particular, and they end up sponsoring their own third party bid called the States Rights Party, uh, led by then Governor Strom Thurmond. Yeah, so they go walking out and launch the States Rights Party, also uh, known as the Dixiecrat Party. Right. Now, the effort there, that's the birth of the of the Dixiecrats. The effort there was to undermine the Democratic Party's electoral success by by, you know, by uh, which would potentially not win the Democratic Party, the Electoral College uh, during that presidential election year. And so they really were threatening to to blow up the whole the whole party if, if they couldn't get their way. Um, you know, in, in that, in that coalition, they felt very marginalized and they were very sensitive to attacks on their, on their power or on their, 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 on their grip within the party. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the bid to, um, deny, uh, then president Truman, a majority of the electoral college did not succeed. Um, although they did manage to win, um, some electoral college votes, uh, in the, uh, 1948 contest, it was especially, 
the threat was especially effective also because you have to remember it was a four party contest that election year because Henry Wallace was running as the progressive candidate to the left of the Democrats. Um, so with the Republicans and the Democrats, then you also had the Dixiecrats and the progressives uh, running national campaigns. Uh, Wallace did not pick up any uh, electoral votes as it happened. Um, but still, nonetheless, the message was sent and the message was, it was received. If the National Democratic Party uh, was going to continue to push strongly worded uh, civil rights as a policy platform, then the South would bolt. And unsurprisingly, there were very few reprisals uh, in terms of the elimination of patronage for Southern members of Congress who had supported the Dixiecrats uh, in the 1948 election. And then the subsequent conventions, uh, 1952 and 1956, uh, under uh, uh, Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson, who wins the nomination uh, for the Democratic Party in both instances, uh, is he strongly moves to placate the South and to cool tempers, to dilute the uh, civil rights plank uh, in the platform and basically reassure them that you have really nothing to fear from me. And this is, this is a, an excellent instance of showing that the way in which party federalism, that decentralized party organization, where each state party was its own autonomous actor that did not have to toe the line for whatever the national party decided to put in its platform, could exert discipline on the entire national party by threatening to leave. So I just I want to reiterate, this is somewhat tangential, but I, I think it's really important to setting the stage. And I'm going to talk about this with my guest next week. I'm going to have Michael McCarthy on the show. He's a sociologist out of a University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we're going to talk more explicitly about this. But just the year before, in 1947, the infamous Taft-Hartley Act comes down. In large part pushed on, I'm sure you, I'm sure you can elaborate far better than I, pushed on by the, the, the would-be Dixiecrats or soon-to-be Dixiecrats who saw the labor militancy, particularly of the CIO, the interracial mi labor militancy in the South – as a threat to their white supremacist, uh, you know, uh, autarky, really, in, in those uh, southern states. So, so, I mean, even it's I think it's important to note, really, that even prior to their uh, their hissy fit, to put it uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an appropriately southern uh, for formulation there, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the South Carolinian and Mississippi hissy fit that they had. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm a good Southerner. I can say things like that. So, uh, even prior to that, they had won a, a serious victory, which would which would just cripple uh, the late the interracial labor movement uh, the year before in Taft Hartley. Uh, so really, the Dixiecrats had a, a, a very solid grip on the party, and they were very unwilling to compromise on their uh, you know autocratic white supremacist rule at that time. Yes, and well, but there were there were still there was still writing on the wall that was making the South incredibly nervous. Um, okay. Okay. First of all, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think while those who would participate in the Dixiecrat bolt, as it came to be known, um, the passage of Taft-Hartley, which of course was passed over Truman's veto, which suggests that they had very, very high numbers, uh, two-thirds th uh, two threshold in both congressional chambers, that was a product not, not just of the Southern Democrats, but crucially of 
of the anti-New Deal conservative coalition that had come together by 1937-38, right? With Southern Democrats joining with um, Northern Republicans, Northern and Western Republicans. Now, what the while the um, while Taft Hartley uh, clearly signaled a victory for the South, it was also a victory for the for the pro business anti labor wing of the Republican Party. Now, as as the Dixiecrats would come to truly find out less than twenty years later, is but by the forties they could already see this. They could not necessarily trust the Republicans, right? Their conservative coalition counterparts. They could not necessarily trust them to vote with the South on issues of civil rights, right? Because that's the way that Lyndon Johnson is eventually going to defeat the Southern filibuster of the 1964 Civil Rights Act is is Johnson is going to be able to pull Republicans over to vote with Northern Democrats to break the filibuster. And and so as much as uh, as... Taft-Hartley shows that there's a basis on which the South and the Republicans can work together, right, so long as it's anti-labor. They looked at the Republicans and with suspicion that they would not be able to always count on them in terms of voting against uh, uh, issues that were not directly labor-related, but would affect issues of Southern so-called race relations. Right. I mean, and this is this is really getting into the weeds of things. We're, we're going to reel it back in right after this comment, I promise, uh, folks. I mean, there are a lot of people in the show who are following every word of this. I have a very smart audience. I, sound, I always sound like Trump when I uh, when I comment. Smartest audience in the very world. Very smart people. Smartest audience in the world. Very smart people. My audience out there. But I mean it. I mean, really. But I also recognize there's some folks who are sort of newer to politics and whatnot. So we're going to reel it back in in just a moment. But it's my understanding that actually that Republican Party coalition that went along with Truman had a lot of interests in fighting uh, discrimination because they they were in um, they sort of controlled certain sectors of capital that uh you know uh, we're we're using and profiting immensely from from black labor and so there was yeah you're you're right to point to the rifts there there wasn't they, the dixiecrats couldn't all they could always get the the northern republicans on side when it came to anti labor issues but sometimes the race issue uh, contradicted the labor issue which which pushed the republicans in, in a more pfft, progressive direction, at least when it came to, uh, you know, anti-discriminatory policies such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So all this stuff, I mean, this is, if this sounds complex and confusing, good. Because what what I'm tra- what we're trying to do here is we're trying to show that history is incredibly complex and contradictory. And these really neat and tidy narratives that we often paint just don't do any of that any justice. And so I think, you know, pointing towards uh, confusion and chaos sometimes, even if you don't quite understand what's going on, is 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 a is a more uh, uh, you know true to true to true to life uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> picture uh, to to try to to, to paint and develop. Yeah, indeed, folks. indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about. Uh, we've talked about how the New Deal coalition began to unravel, and those contradictions and rifts began to widen throughout the 1948 debacle, and uh, they would widen much further still, as as we sort of pointed to in the civil rights movement and beyond. So let's start working towards the the new politics movement of uh, 1968 and 1972. How, how do we get there? Sure. Well, in as much as uh as the uh, 
internal rift within the New Deal coalition is growing between Southern Democrats and Northern racial liberals and, and, and labor liberals uh, and, and the rise of the civil rights movement in the form that we know it uh, or that we are, are most familiar with of the, uh, uh, the sit-down, or I should say the sit-ins and uh, the March on Washington and, and, and so on. By 1966-67, an additional rift begins forming uh, within the labor liberal community, if you want, itself. Going back to the contradictions, not just between the legs of the stools, but within the legs of the stools. Um, and that fundamentally, that axis develops fundamentally over the issue of uh, Cold War fo foreign policy, um, especially in Vietnam. And the Johnson's escalation of the Vietnam War after 1965, which eventually puts somewhere in the range of a half million uh, troops on the ground in, um, in Vietnam, uh, not to mention uh, uh, all the bombings. Um, is becoming uh, increasingly difficult for fairly centrist, traditionally anti-communist uh, liberals to continue to reconcile themselves with. In as much as that project, going back to the early post-war period, had had some basis in asserting uh, universal human rights uh, and uh, respect for human life and dignity, et cetera, et cetera, and fighting totalitarianism. The images coming through uh, media and the reports, not to mention the political critiques that are being voiced by the growing campus anti-war movement, has people like Arthur Schlesinger, uh, James Galbraith, or I should say John, excuse me, John Galbraith, and other very prominent members of the democratic liberal community um, coming to be at war with themselves and with one another how to reconcile their commitment to liberalism, and especially, especially their commitment to Lyndon Johnson, who, who, while escalating this war, is also advancing the most progressive domestic legislative program that anyone has seen since the early New Deal. All right. This was the great society programs that ended uh, discrimination and all, all types of uh, fairly progressive, uh, you know, racial and uh, gender and other sort of uh, programs. Yeah. As well. So how they can continue to be good liberal Democrats while also a gr having growing doubts, not just about the ability to succeed uh, in the military venture in uh, Vietnam, but also the fundamental premises of the war uh, and, and its growing humanitarian cost. These things by uh, 1967 have uh, many concerned Democrats beginning to think that what they need to do is to try and put pressure on Johnson to make a major policy change. And the vehicle that they choose to do this is by running someone against a sitting Democratic president for the nomination of the Democratic Party. And so this, this begins uh, mostly through the uh, agency of, of one particular rather well-known uh, liberal uh, actor, uh, which is uh, Allard Lowenstein, who launches a Dump Johnson campaign. And what initially probably was only meant to put pressure on Johnson, surprise, surprise for everyone involved, ultimately ends up succeeding. It got legs, sort of like the Bernie Sanders it campaign. It got legs. Right? It got legs rather quickly. Yeah. It especially, it was very successful through uh, college campuses. 
Most labor leaders were very hesitant to challenge Johnson. Uh, so, for instance, the, U, the United Auto Workers, which arguably had one of the most left-leaning leaderships, simply could, could only engineer as much as a neutrality position, but couldn't, uh, couldn't openly side against Johnson. But uh, labor leaders' hesitancy notwithstanding, um, the Dumb Johnson movement ends up succeeding and through the uh, challenges from first Senator Eugene McCarthy and then subsequently Senator uh, Robert Kennedy, Johnson ends up withdrawing from the race uh, altogether. This opens up a vacuum at the top of the party. It is now quite unclear where things are going to go. Only 17 states held primaries in uh, 1968. Robert Kennedy and, and... uh, Eugene McCarthy collectively won probably two-thirds of all the delegates in that. Hubert Humphrey, vice president uh, at the time, didn't end- enter a single primary, but labor in particular, uh, labor leaders were busy rounding up delegates through um, states that rather than holding primaries, held co- conventions or caucuses, which were usually quite literally closed um, to the public. And so anti- anti-war activists weren't able to participate in those. In some cases, you write they all these anti-war activists, uh, you know, supporters of uh, Robert Kennedy or Eugene McCarthy, often found locked and chained doors uh, to prevent their participation in, in, in this process. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, what they often found is when they demanded, um, you know, a state committee's bylaws, uh, so that they could try and understand how they might introduce resolutions or might gain a chance to speak from the convention floor, they often found that those state parties actually didn't have written rules. And the uh, that they operated uh, through custom and tradition. Good old boy networks. And, Good old boy uh, networks. Wink, wink, nudge uh, network and that sort of thing, right? In fact, uh, yeah, in, in Connecticut, the DNC chair uh, was, was informally and kind of colloquially referred to as the king of the Democratic Party. Uh, and what that actually captures is how much this the power of the party was in a kind of personalismo kind of politics. Uh, that there really, if you removed the actors from the state party committees, there wasn't an organization left. There just it, it was only in the people uh, who existed in these networks. Um, so all this is to say that uh, anti-war activists faced insurmountable barriers in, in, in getting to participate with these things, found uh, that the uh, proceedings of, of caucus and convention states could be, uh, could be manipulated arbitrarily by the uh, party chairman uh, that they encountered. And even in the primary states, for instance, Eugene McCarthy won a commanding victory in the New York primary. Uh, and then the state committee simply added an additional 50 delegates of which they got to handpick who they were. So, so, so. <laughs> because why not? There are no bylaws. They can do whatever exactly. they want. Right? And, and so they would massively dilute the McCarthy forces in the New York delegation. So fast forward a little bit. Of course, uh, Robert Kennedy is, uh, is assassinated the evening of, of winning the California primary um, in June, I believe. And then it's only about maybe six weeks after that the Democratic uh, National Convention in Chicago assembles and nominates Vice President Hubert Humphrey on the first ballot. 
So there's a real theme here that you're that you're drawing out here in more intense historical detail that you point to, I believe, in your Jacobin essay. You you had an essay in the issue of Jacobin last year, or maybe it was a little over. I think it was June. It might have been June, or maybe it was April 2016. Yeah, it's been been a little while now, uh, but fantastic essay that's in print and now online for free. Folks should, should check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. But but really, what you're talking about here is that, <laughs> oddly enough, you're you're painting a real picture of decentralization of party structure, and it's really kind of the personalization of the institution. The institution really is the person. Like <laughs> l'état c'est moi. You might say like le Democratic Party uh, c'est moi. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Like, I mean, it really and truly. And so what, what you sort of s- summarize, I believe, in that essay in Jacobin is you sort of say, well, what the, what the new politics movement discovered, what these young militants discovered who, who went into the Democratic Party in the late 60s and early 70s, try to take it over and steer it in a more principled direction. What they discovered was that there was no institution to take over. Mm-hmm. And so that movement, in, in, in large part, was one of, of actually creating an institution, mm-hmm. of mandating, uh, uh, you know, uh, st- uh, stable structures, bylaws, centralizing these very decentralized and personalized forces and trying to create an actual vessel that could be commandeered, uh, ideally by them. Right. Exactly. And so, so it's, it's kind of really, you, you, you pay, point to something that's really kind of counterintuitive and that like, this is not simply a story as we often tell it, I think on the left of all oh, these people went into the democratic party and they tried to take it over. No, no, no. It's, it's more than that. They went into the democratic party and discovered that there was nothing behind the curtain except like the wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. right. Talking into a microphone. Right. Uh, and so they had to sort of work to build these structures um, from the bottom up. So maybe just say a little bit about what that looks like, and then we'll go ahead and break uh, because we're going on for about an hour now, and we'll talk about the the contemporary implications uh, over on the beach. Sure, sure. So in the course of the 1968 insurgent campaigns, many activists come to find that when they meet each other and when they talk to each other, that that McCarthy activists in Connecticut and uh, Kennedy activists in Massachusetts and in California and so on, they're finding they are having the same experience, right? And so they begin to form uh, what ends up being called the new politics, which is, you know, people dispute whether it was this a movement or just a mood or a zeitgeist or something like that. Um, And we don't have to go into that, but they prepare themselves between the time of Kennedy's assassination, uh, when it was clear that their best hope for actually capturing the nomination of the party was gone. Uh, They prepared themselves for the Chicago convention by coming up with a list of demands that also essentially cataloged all the procedural irregularities and problems with the actual nomination process. And this is, I mean, what's unbelievable is that no such document existed anywhere in the party. There was no systematic understanding of how the party worked. Wow. It's just incredible. Um, So once this is presented at the convention, amidst what we know about this convention, being plunged into police violence and riots uh, being broadcast on all three national networks through primetime. Millions of people are watching this. 
the chaos on the convention floor is almost as violent. And amidst all that, uh, the nomination of Humphrey, the denial of a anti-war plank in the uh, party platform of that year, a resolution is passed that says, okay, we will form a reform commission, an official party reform commission to look into this, right? And that narrowly passes. And what that, what that does is that becomes a vehicle, an institutional foothold for the new politics movement, the people who had been active in the McCarthy and, and uh, Kennedy anti-war insurgencies, plus new groups that are coming on board with this when they see what a clusterfuck the 1968 Democratic Convention became. Right, right. It, it was it was a madhouse. I'll, I'll try to link to some uh, some audio. CBS presents this program in color. Even inside the convention hall, the virus of violence was pervasive. Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite of CBS News. Take your hands off of me. Dan Rather. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't, don't push me, please. Sir, I know you won't, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you intend to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Walter, as you can see... I don't know what's going on, but this these are security people apparently around Dan. Walter, obviously getting roughed up. We tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. We, uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody felt him in his stomach doing that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate sign on, was uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to... Uh, talk to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was. And at that instance, the security people, uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. <laughs> I didn't do very well. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan. If I may be permitted to say so. Well, mind you, Walter, I'm all right. I, it's, uh, it's all in day's work. Uh, there were some uh, Democratic Party heads who were sort of caught on the microphone saying some really wild stuff, you know, on the stage or off off to the side of the stage. I mean, it was just it was it was chaotic. It really was uh, like a viscerally. Almost, I mean, there, there were some moments that, that this, this past year's DNC that were there were somewhat similar to that. I think, you know, with the Bernie Kratz sort of like uh, causing a ruckus at, at certain points. But it didn't it, it really pales by comparison to what yeah. we saw. There. And and what the especially I mean, what's so important to capture here is that it was these activists plus new groups that were just kind of coming on the scene at the time, the National Women's Political Caucus, uh, the Gay Alliance, uh, 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 many, many new groups of what at the time were called the new social movements, all finding that they have a they common interest in that a democratized Democratic Party will empower them to advance their political and policy goals in national politics. So they're all coming together in the Reform Commission, right? Staffing it, lobbying it, helping implement the uh, guidelines that it ends up producing. But what's so critical about that moment is that the, the Democratic Party's legitimacy had been thrown into doubt. Right. This goes well beyond any kind of issue about whether superdelegates helped Clinton or hindered Sanders or anything. This was undeniable to everybody that the party was was a total mess. Right. And what what really hammered that conclusion home was that they lost in November. Right. Hubert Humphrey loses by a fraction of a percentage of the popular vote 
quite literally one-tenth of one percent or something like that, uh, to Richard Nixon. So in that power vacuum, in that moment of, of, of uh, delegitimation, the new politics activists could persuasively argue that the reason that the Democrats lost is because the party is undemocratic. And that gained traction because no one could honestly look at their catalog of procedural irregularities and the absence of bylaws and rules. No one could plausibly defend that as being, well, there's no problem with this process because, hey, we produce winners. Right. No, you didn't produce a winner. You just lost the election. So it was in that moment between 1968 and 1972 that these activists have a window of opportunity in which they try and build that mass member party that the United States has never known. Very interesting. A lot of parallels there. I mean, they're just screaming at you, right? I mean, of course, uh, I wouldn't say that Richard Nixon was a Trump per se, but but boy, was Dick Nixon hated uh, by the long hairs and and, and, uh, and the counterculture and the, the folks who comprise what you're calling the new social movements and uh, parts of labor and, and, and the anti-war movement and stuff like that. And and so for him to 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 defeat the the Democratic Party bosses, candidates, and strategies, you know, it's it's it's, it's somewhat it, there are there, the parallels between uh, Clinton's failure and the Sanders. A phenomenon are just way too stark to ignore. So I want to I want to really investigate those in, in in some detail. We're going to talk about some of the structural contradictions that are contained within the modern democratic, the contemporary democratic party. How they are similar to what you just laid out in the new politics movement. How they uh, uh, and how they differ. Because I, I mean, every essay that you see. Yours uh, excluded, present company excluded, <laughs> but every other essay that you see written by very smart people, people who, who have a lot of interesting and important things to say. Uh, Lance Selfa had a piece that you cited. I think believe that was actually in New Politics Journal, New Politics Magazine. Paul Heidemann had, a, had an otherwise pretty good essay, I think, in Jacobin and this, the same uh, print version that you put out. And, and many others have written uh, versions of this. Uh, Kim Moody. Uh, you know, renowned labor activist and author has a piece out. But all of these pieces rely on this direct historical comparison uh, between 1968-1972 Democratic Party, you know, um, struggles and today. Really what I want to get into with you in the next segment is to talk about what those similarities are, if the picture that they paint is accurate, and what does that really say about our uh, you know, contemporary moment. So let's go over on the B side. Here is part two of my interview with Adam Hilton. Enjoy. Welcome patrons to the B side of this week's episode. As a reminder, joining me is Adam Hilton. Uh, we had a really great chat about the nature of the Democratic Party, how it is and is not an institution. And uh, we talked about the history of the coalition that comprised it from the New Deal through to the post-World War II era, the Dixiecrat uh, debacle, and into the 1968 uh, convention riot, you might say, mm -hmm. and the new politics movement. So, Adam... Take us through the 1972 era 
and uh, what, what, what the implications are on the shifts in the party that occurred uh, that, that brings us uh, the, the more contemporary structure of uh, you know, the electoral system that the, DN, the Democratic Party currently uh, operates under. Yeah, sure. I mean, in the aftermath of uh, the 1968 catastrophe, as we're saying in, uh, on the A side, the, the balance of forces uh, certainly favored the reformers uh, and the reform activists for a brief period. They were able to make major structural changes to ha- how the presidential nomination procedures operated. Uh, they were able to create uh, many new uh, opportunities for grassroots activists to participate in that. The number of participants in the selection of the uh, presidential nominee uh, more than doubled uh, between 1968 and 1972. Um, and the demographic composition of the conventions, uh, the actual delegates at the convention who do the nominating, from 1968 to 1972 basically fully transformed from a white male uh, middle class, middle age, at least middle age kind of affair to one that much more that that reflected uh, much more accurately the uh, demographic composition of the United States, both in terms of race, gender, age, and class. So I want to get into that just really briefly. A lot of people on the left, in particular, when we tell our stories about the realignment attempt. And to go inside the Democratic Party and shift it in a, in a leftward. Of course, that's always framed as a failure because as you're about to lay out, well, it was in some senses a failure. But there were key advances there, right? Like as you mentioned, the composition of the folks who participated in those party structures far more greatly represented the composition of society at large. The new political or the new social movements rather sort of flooded into those structures. And as well, like the Dixiecrats were kicked out of the party. I mean, that that was what enabled it in part, I would say. Um, would you agree with that? The, the, the Dixiecrats exit from the Democratic Party apparatus, you know, how, however loose it might have been at that time, uh, really enabled the diversification of, of the Democratic Party. Well, absolutely, because, I mean, you get uh, many of the uh, African-American delegates are now coming in the southern delegations, which had previously been um, segregated and or that is to say, lily white uh, delegations, uh, because those parties, as we mentioned on the A side, were undemocratic, authoritarian kind of party states in, in that region. But after I mean, with the help of the uh, 1964-65 Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, plus uh, efforts at desegregation, plus the reforms, the party reforms that come from the uh, new politics activists, those states are democratized from internal uh, African-American insurgencies, but as well as from the top down through the reformers acting through the national party. Okay, so take us through the ni- uh, 1972. Uh, b- <laughs> take us through 1972 to present. Just give us 40 years of history, you know, in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> Just to be clear with folks, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to do a whole separate episode on the rise of the third way, talking about Clinton, the folks, uh, you know, who emulate- emulated Clinton in many ways, Tony Blair, who's known for third wayism. Uh, and, and so on. So we're going to have a whole episode on that formation. So, so give us a quick little uh, gloss on that transformation and what it means for our contemporary moment. Sure. Well, uh, the high point uh, for the new politics movement uh, after it's reformed the party is, of course, uh, the 1972 nomination of uh, uh, South Dakota Senator George McGovern, uh, who had been a prominent and vocal critic of the uh, Vietnam War from within the Senate 
had uh, take had stepped in to to kind of uh, hold the uh, Robert Kennedy's convention delegates in '68 after Kennedy's uh, murder, and was himself uh, the lead uh, chairperson for the Reform Commission uh, that that uh, assembled after the 1968 catastrophe. Uh, so McGovern was un, was undeniably associated, though not quite a leader of the new politics movement. And with all those new convention delegates being selected through open and uh, new nomination processes uh, in 72, uh, McGovern uh, narrowly but successfully uh, wins the, uh, the nomination and goes on to face uh, Richard Nixon in November. Now, mm-hmm. McGovern goes down to a historic landslide defeat, losing every single state except the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. And there are many possible reasons that we could go through as to exactly why that happened. But what's most important for the narrative that we're constructing here is that whereas after 1968, members of the Democratic Party that had very little sympathy with the reform project also had very little grounds on which to object to the demands for reform. After all, it had just been revealed that the Democratic Party basically had no formal process governing its nomination procedures. So you could pitch the reform project as just simple, straightforward modernization, right? And who could object to that? The outcome of the 1972 election gives the anti-reformers the rationale they need to push back against the reform project, to push back against the new politics movement. Because now they can say, these reforms lead to defeat. They don't work. They don't We're in the business of winning elections, people. We're pragmatic. We are the people who get things done. Yeah. And and, and, uh, importantly, they can point to things like that. Actually, Nixon's reelection had almost no coattails effect. Uh, Mm -hmm. He did not carry Republicans into the Senate or the House with him. Uh, Democrats did did fairly well uh, below the presidential level. So all the more so they could say the reforms to the presidential nominating system have produced a extremist candidate who is obviously out of touch or out of sync with the median voter or, you know, where American voters really are. So many people who uh, had opposed reform on procedural grounds and especially many people who objected to McGovern's uh, willingness to entertain revising the Cold War commitments that the Democratic Party leadership had been committed to since uh, the end of the Second World War. They form an organization called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, and they set out over the ensuing 10 years or so, progressively whittling away at the reforms that had been made between 68 and 72, never fully turning the clock back to the status quo ante. They cannot go back to the pre-68 form of of nomination, but they dilute the affirmative action commitments. Uh, They scrap the much larger designs that had been uh, in the works for creating more mass membership forms of organization. They had the midterm policy councils. They had regional organizations. They, They had really an aggressive and ambitious plan on how to transform the party. The Coalition for a Democratic Majority is partly responsible for scrapping all of that. However, uh, over time, most of those cold warriors end up finding that they're not really able to restore the New Deal coalition uh, that they so romanticize. 
the mm-hmm. South is increasingly gravitating towards the Republican Party and the Republican Party, especially uh, under after after Reagan's near successful insurgency in uh, 1974 and then his victory in 1980. Um, many of these members of the Coalition for a Democratic Majority end up finding a new home in, in a, a neoconservative project uh, on the other side of the aisle. And so this leaves the new politics movement defeated and demoralized inside the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and basically creates the space for uh, what will become known as the New Democrats, the Clintonian uh, wing, uh, to come in and sort of harvest the fruits. Right. So let's 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 just gloss over the third way New Democrats uh, sort of uh, moment, or maybe you can just sort of set the stage for our contemporary era. Because what I want to do now is I want to start drawing out the similarities and the differences between our contemporary moment and between the new politics era. Uh, because as I mentioned at the close of the B side, these are uh, really the stakes of the debates around the Democratic Party. Uh, spoiler alert, neither you nor I believe that the Democratic Party is an unproblematic, uh, unproblematic vessel of socialist transformation. On the contrary. <laughs> oh, contraire. Uh, you know, I, 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 perhaps we should have made that more clear in the interview on the A side, and I will certainly make that clear in the intro so that folks don't get it twisted. Uh, so our argument here, my argument, certainly, you can speak for yourself in a, far more authoritatively than me, but uh, my argument is not to say that actually, uh, I don't know, maybe the realignment strategy is something we should look at today. No, but, 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 but it's important to get the history right and the specificity of the moment right, uh, because only then can we really move in, uh, in a strategic direction, I think. So you talk about... The way in which the post-1972 Democratic Party forces, the, the moderates, the hegemonic uh, you know, forces inside the Democratic Party returned to a more kind of pragmatic orientation to winning elections. And they tried to sort of cohere this romanticized coalition that came out of the New Deal. What, what, where do you think the parallels are for – the Clintonian wing of the Democratic Party in trying to just appeal to the same old forces inside the American body politic. I mean, are those forces, at least it would appear to me, are no longer there in the same way that they were in the Clinton and Obama years. Um, so they're really at an impasse. What do you make of this impasse? Yeah, it's um, it, there, there are some remarkable similarities um, uh, there, at least in terms of of the rhetoric about, you know, that the Sanders wing of the party and it, it's, it's aggressiveness in, in pushing what you and I might call a social democratic platform for most commentators, especially democratic elites would just call it, you know, maybe liberal or an ultra liberal kind of platform. Um, you, there's some similarity there that they're worried, or, or at least they conjure up the specter of McGovernism. In the sense that the lesson they try and take from that, or try and or try and extract and promote from 1972, is that if the Democratic Party gives into its left wing, lets the left wing dominate, then it will stray from where the mainstream voters are, and it will lose elections and lose catastrophically. Right, and and this is right, a right. this is a sort of disciplinary force to apply on the party because you know whether you are some you know, beltway hack 
or uh, you are a committed, you know, Sanders supporter, left social democrat or socialist or something like that, no one wants to lose. Right, right. The right. threat of losing, especially to losing to uh, the kind of party that wins when the Democrats lose, that has a powerful disciplinary effect on all players, whether you are, uh, where you, whether you are a pragmatist in principle or whether you're a principled person who nevertheless still has to recognize that you have to be pragmatic sometimes. Right. It, it, a loss would be catastrophic. I mean, Leo Panitch was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And it might not be popular to say this, but he always raises the specter, the possibility that had Sanders won the nomination, but then lost the general election, it would have set back the socialist movement a generation. And I think that's probably true. Um, that's probably true. And I'm, you know, whatever, who knows what Bernie would have won. Bernie wouldn't have won. Who cares? Right. All jokes aside. But like, but there's, I think what you're saying is very true. Uh, losing elections can be catastrophic and be crippling uh, to the development of certain political tendencies. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think it would have been much more likely uh, had that happened, that scenario that, that you drew out, then we would see a post 1972 kind of way of, of, of the neoliberal centrists having the perfect rationale mm. handed mm -hmm. to them as to why the Bernie wing should be totally ignored, right? And, right, and marginalized right. through every effort they possibly could. Um, plus the fact that the Bernie wing would be so demoralized by that loss, they would probably, I mean, they would probably not put up as much of a fight. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't be uh, emboldened in the way that they had been, you know, in the past uh, yeah. year or so. I mean, it's, it's weird to say, but in some ways, Hillary Clinton winning the nomination and then losing the election was probably the best possible scenario that could have happened for those in the party who are trying to argue that the party should reconceive of itself and move in a different direction. Right. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. And you can say that in a way that has nothing to do with like the vulgar accelerationist argument. Right. No, no, like, of course. Well, not. Like we, we don't have to we don't have to say that meaning like, well, yes, it's good. And we wanted that and we should have pushed for that because no, that's not what we're saying. But we're just sort of saying like, you know, in order, in order to widen these contradictions in, in a way. Uh, yeah. I mean, of course, then again, I'm sounding like a, f a freaking accelerationist. So forget I said that. But my point is, we're not accelerationists, people. Yeah, this is, this <laughs> isn't about heightening the contradictions. This is yeah. this is just simply to point out had Clinton won. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The uh, national party apparatus would be fully subordinated to the White House. Mm -hmm. um, uh, whatever's going on in um, uh, in terms of thinking about revising the rules around superdelegates, which which is something that's going on uh, sort of under the radar right now, all of that would probably be totally scotched. Um, right, right. Uh, the the Sanders insurgency would have been a blip, and and they would have just soldiered on for the next four to eight years. And I think that would probably have taken a lot of the momentum out of the right, uh, right, Sanders right. Uh, movement, if you want to call it that. So, so what you're getting at, I mean, really, this gets at the, the nature of what the Democratic Party even is, right? So as you write, uh, you know, and you've stated over and over again uh, on the A side in important ways, the Democratic Party, when there's a Democrat in it, sitting in the presidency – I mean, it really, it, it's, it is the presidency, yeah. right? There is no institution, you know, that's, that stands outside that has a mass base that's represented, uh, you know, through its mass base. No, 
Like it is an arm, an explicit wing of the, the presidency. And so to, to envision that had Hillary Clinton won the, uh, you know, the, pre- the election, that there would be this institution for the Bernie Kratz to work within, it's just it's, – it's illusory. Yeah. I mean it, it fundamentally misrepresents what the Democratic Party is and what political parties do. In, I mean, that's why the Republican Party is in such a such an up, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, whatever they're doing over there. I mean, because Trump is is technically the head of the Republican Party right now, and so there's no space for the Republicans to operate inside the GOP in, a, in an independent way to sort of you know oppose him through through official uh, party channels. And it would have been exactly the same way had Clinton won the election. I think it's really important that we wrap our heads around that. Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh I mean, I think another thing that we could maybe draw in, in par- or a lesson that maybe we could extract from, uh, from the experience of the new politics for all that they achieved and, and the, the laudable reforms that I think they made to the party that, that did in a meaningful sense democratize it, though the quality and how far reaching that internal party democracy really is, um, is, is always worth questioning and, 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 uh, and noting. But I, I think this is also a period where, where a lesson we can understand is that the Democratic Party, because it's not an organization you can really grab onto, because it's not something you can actually really colonize, that you don't get much resources, you don't get much uh, infrastructure from trying to take it over, mm-hmm. um, but is so porous, is so vulnerable uh, to, to insurgencies of various kinds that this is, I mean, my, my ultimate thesis on this, I think, is that um, I think while a strong independent left could use the Democratic Party for the only thing parties are really good for in the United States, which is to translate votes into seats in office, hmm. um, not build the powers of the working class, not collectively organize workers in their communities and their workplaces, right? Parties don't do that. In the United States, they don't have the organizational capacities to do that. And rather than trying to transform them into things that could do that, which arguably is 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 part of uh, or would have been uh, a part of uh, the new politics project, then I think I think instead we should rethink what the left can accomplish from party politics. Uh, a strong left, I think, could use the Democratic Party, but you can't use the Democratic Party to build the left. That's a really that's that that's great. I like that. Uh, yeah, say that one more time for the folks, just for emphasis. Okay, I a I think it is conceivable. Yes, given the kind of organize, organization that it is, that uh, a strong left, a strong independent left, could use the Democratic Party to turn votes into seats in office. But you cannot use the Democratic Party to build that left. Well, there we go. Thanks so much, Adam, for being on the show. Uh, <laughs> that was a mic drop, I do believe. We could end there. Uh, but uh, we'll, I maybe we'll should have said on. that first uh, on the A side. You but. know, the thing about the long form interview, we were talking about this off air. People, you know, it's funny because it's funny. The criticism that I get, it's like, well, you guys just don't understand how this works, do you? They say, hey, Adam, Adam's really long winded. These, these episodes go too long. Uh, they really talk too much. And it's kind of like, listen, people, uh, we don't pull this stuff, you know, out of thin air. Like it takes time to develop these, these uh, pithy 
uh, you know, statements. It's, uh, you know, I'm not even sure you were ready to say that an hour and a half ago. Like yeah. you sort of had to come to this, this uh, really pithy formulation. And I'm glad we got it out there before the interview was over. So let's, let's go on then. Like what, what's to be done? What, what's next? You, you gave us a really great formulation there. Um, so given that the democratic party cannot be transformed and wielded as a way of cohering the, you know, the working class into a class in and for itself, so to speak, um, what's to be done? What is our relationship? There, I mean, there are a lot of, these are not theoretical questions. There are a lot of live debates. For example, there was a, there was a proposal that went forward, uh, on the, the, uh, democratic socialists of America convention this past summer as to whether or not the DSA should affiliate in any way, shape or form with a democratic party, whether or not, you know, this would, this would have, to my understanding, I think, uh, you know, basically prevented any DSA chapter from endorsing someone who's running on the Democratic Party platform, I do believe. And even if that wasn't the proposal, there are people out there who are talking in that way, right? Uh, having a very, uh, you know, exclusionary kind of um, black and white relationship with the Democrats. And so how do you envision that relationship taking place? And, and what's a principled socialist left to do? Hmm, yeah. Yeah, well, it's the big question, huh? Um, it is. It's a big one. Well, you know, the Democratic Party uh, is not our friend. Uh, and I don't think we have to pretend that it is, uh, that it is our party or that it will ever be our party. You know, I mean, th this this speaks to the fundamental ambiguity of American parties. Are, are, they, are they private partisan organizations or are they are they public entities in, in which everyone should be able to participate. I mean, that's, that's what people started asking a hundred years ago when they introduced primaries as a way of, I mean, no other, mm. no other country uses primaries to nominate mm. somebody. You'd let the public make a decision for the party, right? That's not clear that that should be the case. Um, mm. I think we should think about them as somewhere in the middle, that they're almost quasi state organs and we should exploit them in every possible opportunity that we can. We, what we have to be sober about is what we should reasonably expect to get from a party. I see. And I am, I mean, I would be the first person to endorse and support the building of a third party, a truly working class mass membership party uh, that would actually be charged with transforming workers into a class in the way that we talked about. Um, I don't see that on the agenda anywhere in the future. Um, at least in the foreseeable future. So if the party can't build the class, then we have to come up with other kinds of organizations that can build the class. And then, you know, not, not as its only mission, but as an important component of building the strength of the left, uh, that independent working class organization has to be able to put pressure on Democrats because there are things we need from the state. Yeah. How are we supposed to organize the working class if people are working 40, 50 or more hours a week? They don't have time to be political activists. They don't have time to associate with members of their neighborhood and their workplace and, and develop their capacities as individuals and as collectivities to, to think and do politics. So we need, we need policy changes. I mean, it, it sounds a little wonkish, but that, that's part of the political struggle. So there are things we need from the state. And, uh, and without uh, our own vehicle, without our party, then we've got to use what is, was it, what is at hand. We should not have illusions that we can transform this thing into being our party. It won't mm -hmm. be our party. 
Um, but at the same time, uh, it the, the, the uh, both American political parties have major problems when it comes to stopping insurgencies. You know, I mean, Donna Brazil suggests, okay, well, uh, this thing was rigged. Yeah, right. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Was the pri- was the primary uh, rigged? Was the Democratic Party uh, primary rigged? Uh, as far as what I can tell from the evidence that she's presenting, what she means by rigged is that Clinton had domination of, of the DNC and was actually had come up with a very creative form of money laundering and had a financial advantage. I could, I could have told you that that was true before the campaign even started, hmm. uh, before the primary process even started, that a partisan organization was not going to be a fair fight between the standard bearer of the establishment and an independent socialist senator (laughs) is almost true by definition. Yeah. Uh, That the DNC staff were going to be totally hostile to Sanders and do whatever they could to to bend the campaign in Clinton's favor, they were going to do. You'd have to be totally enamored in in the ideology of the Democratic Party as this allegedly neutral space that's, you know, representative of all comers and, uh, you know, it's open and infinitely open in a democratic direction, right? Like you'd have to be really enamored in that ideology to believe for a second that that the Clintonian wing would would stand on equal footing with the Sanders uh, wing, you know? Yeah. Of course. Of course. And uh, that Clinton had advantages. Uh, I think it, it goes without saying. But if by rigged, people are suggesting that ballots were miscounted or rules were changed at the 11th hour, hmm. um, then I think they're wrong. I, the rules put in place for how states decide who can participate in primaries um, were put in place two years earlier. I mean, those were rules from 2014. And those rules had just been adopted with minor revisions from 2012. So those rules were set in place. I mean, what we should be objecting to is maybe still the capacity of some state parties to have closed primaries and others to have open, because that hugely affected how well Sanders could do. Um, But that goes back to party federalism. The decentralized nature of this party is is those states get to decide how they run their own primaries. Uh, There isn't one national set of rules. Um, so I think, I think even though the, the field is tilted against insurgents, which (laughs) is true by definition, if that word means what I think it means, if you are an insurgent, (laughs) you are a hostile force in, in, in a foreign land. You will be Uh, perceived as such, right? You will be perceived as such. You will be treated as such. (laughs) And as far as I know, um, there were no actual procedural shenanigans other than scheduling debates on, you know, weeknights where where Monday night football was on or on the weekend or something like that, mm-hmm. which obviously is shady. But I mean, it's a shady organization. It doesn't want a socialist independent right. senator t- to win. Um, but he actually, but he actually almost did. He, he actually almost did. Almost yeah. did. To say that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I mean, I think this is my takeaway from 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 what I've learned. I think most from you to today. To say that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is shady, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of fundamentally true. She's awful. She's 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 terrible. I'm not defending her, but what I mean is to say to say that her actions were shady is to fundamentally misrecognize like the normative 
uh, state of the De- Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Because the assumption there is that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is doing something that exists outside of the institutional frameworks and the norms that exist that are the Democratic, you know, that represent the Democratic Party. And what your argument is, is actually no. Debbie Wasserman Schultz kind of was the Democratic Party when she was the head of the DNC. There's, there's a real personification of power. There's, a, there's a, the decentralization of the states. I mean, we can talk about what ought to be, what would be a more just arrangement. But to suppose that Wasserman Schultz was in some way, you know, putting her finger on, a, on an otherwise fair scale just fundamentally rep- misrepresents, you know, what the party is. Do, do you think I have that right? I mean, that sounds, I mean, I think that's good then, right? Because there is no scale. There is no scale of justice for Wasserman Schultz to put her finger on. Yeah. Right? I mean, the party elites kind of, they are the scale. Yeah, I, I, I think that's closer to the truth. Um, I think that's closer to the truth. And okay. remember, we're talking about the actual pinnacle of the party. I mean, this is the most... Um, ripe fruit on the party tree that that the left was trying to pluck away from uh, what was uh, uh, supposed to be just a straightforward coronation of the standard bearer. Mm-hmm. Um, the success of of the left running insurgencies at subnational levels, which of course also have primaries, um, could be infinitely more successful. Right? These are not right. things that that you would have a whole network of party elites mobilizing against either in terms of endorsements or money. Um, and, I, and I think that's basically how Sanders sees this in the Our Revolution uh, organization that has been his post-campaign successor, is I think they fundamentally understand that when they talk about transforming the party, and they use that language just like the new politics movement used to, they don't mean revamping its institutional structure, which, which I think is a good idea because I think that, that gets us off on the wrong path. They simply mean of this structure is permeable, and if we put the right people in office, yes, we're not going to get socialism from that. It's not going to build the collective capacities of the working class, but we'll be able to shift the political agenda in a fruitful way. As you write in your article, for one key example of that, is up to half of local offices, local Democratic Party offices, are vacant. Um, so it's it's simply not the case that this is a bureaucratic structure that's impossible to get into and operate inside of. It's the case that there's a, just an overall lack of enthusiasm about participating in, in local and state Democratic Party structures simply because there really isn't any uh, you know feeling that you can really make much of a difference one way or the other. Right. Um, so so the, it's it's this uh, – what do you call that? One of your sections is titled the – or something really uh, good that I openness without entry, right? Openness without entry. That's the par- it's, that's the paradox of Democratic Party organization. That's brilliant. I like that a lot. You 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 point to a couple really key paradoxes and and plays on words in this Socialist Register piece, and that's I think that's one of my favorite. It's openness without entry, and so sure half of the party. So we'll see. To my point is, we'll see to what extent our revolution is successful. I think both you and I. Are, are are skeptical. Although, you know, any way that we can expose uh, these a-holes inside the DNC, you know, the Tom Perez's of the world, uh, the better, I think. I think we're better off, expo- you know, shining as much sunlight as we can on these folks. Yeah. And I think, to expose I, th- them. I think the way in which we could, uh, as we were talking a little bit um, when we were off air, I think the way to understand, to circle all the way back to, to the Brazil revelations, 
is that, as you, as you put it, I think, uh, the story is the story. Right, right. Uh, what, what is, I mean, between Donna Brazile, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Stanley Gre- Greenberg, who did a, a, an interesting interview with uh, The New Yorker, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Sanders, and, and many of his, uh, his uh, other surrogates and their Well, ex- hell, the, sh- the book Shattered, the whole Shattered book, yeah. you know, the tell-all expose on the Clinton campaign sort of told the same story as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, the reason we are litigating and relitigating the primaries and 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 trying to divine their meeting is because the future of the Democratic Party is entirely unclear, and no one has hegemonic control of this over this process anymore. Uh, right? I mean, you have party elites w- turning away from Clinton because they think she's toxic. Um, uh, that's probably an accurate observation, but no one has emerged as as the successor, and and time will tell as to who that is, but more fundamentally, it is up in the air just what this party is going to stand for in the era yeah. of Trump, right. uh, which direction it's, it's going to go. And, and, and I think it's mostly a false dichotomy when people say, well, this is, it's either going to stress economic issues and go for the white working class, or it's going to retain issues of, of identity and, mm-hmm. and millennial issues. I, th- I don't think those are the options. And I think it's really important that, that for all the limitations of engaging with the Democratic Party, and we should be sober about those, I, I think the, the Brazil re- revelations expose that this, this war is, taking very, very, is being taken very seriously. And the mainstream, moderate, neoliberal party elites uh, do not have control over this, over this process any longer. Right, right. When I see, you know, when you say the story is the story, it's not that Donna Brazil said anything that no, that, that we didn't necessarily know. I mean, uh, I think there was a piece that came out. Uh, it was either on the Hill or Politico or something. No, it was, maybe it was the Hill. I can't remember where it came out, but basically, you know, uh, it went through the whole line by line of Brazil's accusations in this, you know, in this the selection from her book. You know, he said actually, well, the Bernie Sanders campaign had a similar fundraising agreement. It's just that they, they they signed it, but they chose not to go in that direction. They, they decided to opt for small donors. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe the Sanders campaign didn't know to what extent the Clinton uh, campaign was was given control because of those financial contributions. But they were offered the, – the Sanders wing was offered the same deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as though they didn't know the deal existed. So the point is to say – I'm not, this does not absolve any of the shenanigans, right, on the DNC. Like, I don't know, if it was up to me, I'd burn it down to the, you know, burn it to the ground and start over fresh, right, metaphorically speaking. Because you say, as you say, I'm not even sure what you would burn, right? Like, (laughs) what is there to burn? Who knows? Uh, In any case, the revelation is that there was a revelation and that this is deemed to be a story by someone as high up. The, on the rungs of the of the Democratic Party ladder, as Donna Brazil, to now come out against it, and to say that look, what we all knew to be true for the last year, this matters, and I'm going to make it. I'm, I'm going to make it matter, right? So the story is the story. Yeah, and I think you know where it goes from here. Uh, you know, it, it really we don't know. And I think I think we all need to be ready for this. And so let's talk, you know, one last thing. God, you've raised so many things I wish we would have talked about. We could have talked for hours about this whole thing about like this BS about the so-called white working class versus identity, so-called identity politics and all of the misdirection involved in that faux debate. 
Um, but just let's close with tell us why we have to why are we still relitigating the primary? Are we stuck here? I mean, why is it that we seem to be just living in the past and why can't we move forward in a more positive direction? And maybe even make an argument, I think, that you might you might have an interesting take on this as to why actually maybe relitigating the primary is what we should be doing right now. <laughs> maybe. You know, I'm going to be provocative here. A lot of people will probably hate me for saying that. Well, I, I think it does come down to that, that the party is standing at a crossroads. Um, the current strategy uh, being employed uh, by the party leadership, uh, um, particularly the party in government, um, so uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, um, and, and many others, is to simply take an anti-Trump position is use the catastrophe and the horror show that is the Trump administration to paper over the differences that opened up between Clinton and Sanders in the uh, those wings of the party in the 2016 nomination race. Um, to not address it, to not reopen those wounds, but to simply try and move forward, right? That's the phrase that you hear most often. Simply move forward without addressing it, hoping that those problems will go away. And that by 2020, a candidate will emerge who somehow can simply magically bridge that divide in a way to to suppress internal party conflict. Right. They're just going along to get along. uh, And and that seems to be the status quo. Um, What we will have to see is whether that gains any traction in the 2018 midterm elections, Um, because if it doesn't and the Republican uh, the current configuration of the Republican coalition continues as is, despite all of Trump's bullshits and fuck ups and everything. Then I think that strategy will, will be open to serious challenge in, in which case the Sanders wing will be able again to press that actually coming out with ideologically committed candidates and, and strong policy positions on universal universal uh, social services and uh, decommodification and so on, that that, that that may actually be able the way to back to democratic victory. Um, so right now, I think it's just this profound moment of, of, of a vacuum. And people continue to relitigate the primaries because there's a lot at stake in trying to understand what happened. Uh, after all, I mean, we do need to say it, Hillary Clinton came very, very close to winning. Uh, oh, yeah. If if yeah. only eight if only eighty thousand votes among the many many millions of votes cast if only eighty thousand votes stretched across three states went a different way then then I mean we would all just say well we all knew that she was going to win right it would have been yeah. just business as, as usual yeah. yeah and uh, and and we already talked about I think the effects that would have had on on the uh, Sanders movement. You can fit 80,000 people into a typical college uh, football stadium uh, exactly. in the United States uh, for those. In, in, a, in a small uh, soccer uh, football stadium in Europe, if you will. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so the Clinton people have a basis. It's slim, in my opinion. But they have a basis from which to argue, look, nothing is wrong. There is no need to panic. We didn't do anything wrong. We came really, really close. But hey you know, sometimes you come that close and you fall short, right? If she had been wiped out, 
which almost never happens these days. But if she had been wiped out, I mean, there would be no question that everything about the Clintonian third way is garbage. Yeah. A la McGovern. Exactly. Too, as, you, as we just highlighted. Yeah, yeah. So in this interregnum that we're in now, where it's unclear who's got control of the party, which way is the path back to victory, and both the Sanders wing and the Clinton wing having bases upon which they can argue that their way is the right way, then the primaries are going to continue to be relitigated. Well, all we have to do really is we can shut out the Democratic Party pundits and all the rest of them. We don't even have to listen to the Sanders, the Bernie Kratz or those folks. Really, you need to turn to Tony Fabrizio, who uh, was uh, the Trump campaign's leading pollster, who, re- who said in an event this past Monday or last week at Harvard uh, University that uh, Sanders uh, would have won, that Bernie uh, would have won in a head-to-head uh, election against Donald Trump. So this is one of Trump's former staffers, head pollster, saying this. Now, whether or not that's true, we have reason to believe that that may or may not be true. Uh, The consensus is shifting, but we have uh, Trump's former pollster saying Bernie would have won. We have Donna Brazil, former uh, DNC chair, interim chair, coming out against the Clinton wing. So things are definitely in flux. And um, I'll give you the last word, but I think really what I've what I've want, what I've tried to do here, and I think we've done this really successfully, is tra- transcend the simplistic black and white, yay or nay, good or bad kind of analysis of the D- Democratic Party that we have on the left, and just to take it seriously. I'm just trying to encourage socialists to take. The, the machinations that go on in and around the Democratic Party seriously. And, and this is really the basis of your academic work. And so give us a final pitch as to why, even though the Democratic Party is not going to be the vessel of our liberation, despite that, why should, why should socialists take the Democratic Party seriously? Well, I think we should take it seriously because it is what we've got on hand right now. Um, and I mean, under ideal conditions, we would have our own kind of party. Um, but socialists don't get to make their history, uh, under conditions that they get to choose. Uh, we have to work with what we've got, um, in the short term and in the medium term. And, uh, you know, that's not the end of the story. It's not that we have to complacently just accept that the democratic party is the end all be all, but, if we are able to build the class and and organize working class power, left wing power, however we understand that, in ways that can effectively exploit the Democratic Party when it is exploitable and when it is worth us throwing our efforts and energies and resources into it, that is also the way to start building up the constituency that, as we mentioned before, would be the basis for a working class third party, right? That the right, that right. this isn't this is especially not an either or kind of scenario, because the way in which the left could build its own power to manipulate the Democratic Party in ways that help the left and help working class people is also the same path by which we could start building class capacities to a point where we could feasibly launch a third party that would probably, without a change of other kind of electoral institutions, end up displacing one of the existing parties. 
I mean, that's a big, big long-term project. Um, but it's, it's, it's not a, it's not an either or, uh, decision. I think, I think the path to, to exerting pressure of an independent political organization on the democratic party is the same pathway to building the party that we actually need. Well, there you have it. That's a very spirited and rigorous defense of building a movement outside of the party that will impact all of the political forces in society. Uh, we'll, we'll take them. We'll take them along with us and we'll do it our way. Uh, but of course, what happens in and around the battles of the Democratic Party are incredibly important, as we have seen in the past two years. So thanks, Adam Hilton. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for doing the A side. Thanks for sticking around for the B side. You know, God, as always, there are like four or five other topics I wish we could have gotten to. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of crap from my amazing, intelligent listeners. Got the smartest listeners around, folks. Uh, God, my Trump act, my Trump impression sucks. Could use a little work, but uh, it's, that's God. okay. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, apologies to my listeners. You know, a lot of topics that we didn't get to. Just, just to, just, just to say that we did it before we we, we part ways here. Uh, let's uh, do the customary denunciation uh, of the Democratic Party as a vessel of socialist transformation. Okay, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I, Adam Proctor, do not believe that the Democratic Party is uh, the vessel of uh, socialist transformation, and I denounce it. Okay, your turn. Okay, I, Adam Hilton, do not yeah. believe the Democratic Party is a vehicle for socialist transformation. There you go. Take it, haters. <laughs> Take that, haters. You can't accuse us of that. That's for sure. Although they'll do it anyway. You know they're going to do it anyway. Oh, yeah. That's, that's fine. That's normal. <laughs> you can handle it. You're smart enough. I'm a little sensitive. You know, I got a sensitive side. I, criticism really gets me. It's me deep. <laughs> Any case, man, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'd we'll, we'll like to have you back again to talk about some of these things as they unravel. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of change uh, coming down the pike for the Democratic Party, that's for sure. Sure. Anytime, Adam. Thanks very much. Oh, this new crazy mother...